Well, this was a week uh, that could have been a great week for you, maybe a miserable week. Whoever decided to put a time change in the same week as an election week was crazy, missing some bolts upstairs. Um, And so according to the polls, 50.5% of the nation is celebrating this week and 49.5% of the nation is thinking that we have entered the end times. And uh, if you... If you are a a night person, not a morning person, and you voted Republican, then you certainly think we've entered the end times because not only did your candidate lose, but you're still struggling with the time change. Then add to that, if you're a UT fan who promised that A&M was going to be killed when they entered the SEC, then then today you're just all kinds of confused and, uh, and thinking about jumping ship maybe. Listen, our country is, is in a crazy spot, and, uh, and I guess one of the things that, that shocked me more than anything, maybe it didn't shock me, but one of the things that I found interesting uh, as I look at Facebook and Twitter and look at all my Christian friends spread out around the world was, was, was the reaction to the election, either of jubilee or, or doom and gloom based off the, the election, and, uh, and of course, for us in the room, it certainly isn't a miss. Uh, you know, Lauren and I, Wednesday night, kind of had a little debate about the Electoral College and its, its value today with modern technology and all these kind of things. But, but if you're one of the younger generations, uh, many of the younger generations find the Electoral College system something that makes us rather apathetic towards voting in general. Uh, especially if you're in a state that is favored one way or the other, then you might feel like your vote doesn't matter a whole lot. And, and while I have to confess I'm one of those people that just feels like um, my vote living in the state of Texas really doesn't matter a whole lot, uh, I still value voting. And I can remember waking up and joking with my wife, who does uh, take that very seriously, uh, that I was just not going to not vote and, and was told otherwise. Um, so Tuesday, it was Tuesday, right? It's been a long time since then. Tuesday I went uh, to where I was supposed to vote. And walked in, and uh, the the couple that came in after me were uh, Pakistani Americans, and uh, and I know this because I was eavesdropping as they were talking to the people explaining the process to them. Where the station where I voted, you could choose paper ballot or electronic ballot, uh, and and the conversation went kind of like this: you know, you can either vote through a paper ballot or you can vote for an electronic ballot. Now, the electronic ballot isn't touchscreen, so there's a little spin dial, and you're going to have to spin, and then there's a red button, a green button, an arrow button, a blue button, and, and just kind of went on like that, you know, and, and began speaking in tongues without interpretation. And the Pakistani couple just said, uh, we better do paper ballot because this is our first time ever to vote, and that sounds too complicated. She said, oh, it's your first time to vote in this country. And they said, no, this is our first time to vote. Um, so I don't know what position they were back uh, in, in Pakistan, but they were there to vote. And, and the thought came to my mind, uh, whether I feel like my vote is, really matters or not, because of the electoral college system, voting in this country is a blessing that we all have, right? The ability to wake up, to freely go without care or concern, enter my place of voting give them my driver's license, know that my vote is not going to be falsified in any way, form, or fashion, know that I can ask people there to help me work through the ballot and they're not going to influence my decision, walk out, get in my car and drive away without fear of being murdered, harassed, whatever is a tremendous privilege that very few people around this world have. And so I voted. 
one of the interesting things about this election as I was uh, reading was that our, the largest group, as our candidates were comp- campaigning, the largest group in the country today uh, that, that they are campaigning towards have been identified as the, you can call them no ones, nuns, uh, whatever you wanna, however you want to pronounce it. They, they, they represent 19.6% of the population, roughly 46 million people. And, and one of the interesting things about the nuns uh, is that, or no ones, is that they cross socioeconomic barriers, unlike any other group. And the, the knowns are identified as, as a group of people who are not atheist. They believe in a superior being. And yet they celebrate the ambi- ambiguity of not being labeled. Identified by choosing to stress the importance of acting with compassion rather than choosing a predetermined system of beliefs. Now let me translate that into English. Essentially what they are is they're people that believe that there might be a God out there, a superior power, they don't know. Uh, they definitely believe there's something out there, but they believe in the individual's right to determine what that is for themselves. And so rather than ascribing to a denomination or a religion or a church or an affiliation of any sort, they exalt the individual's right to determine what that being is for themselves, which seems like an oxymoron to me, to believe that there's a higher being, but that each person can choose who that higher being is and how it influences their life. Yet this is where we find ourselves, and this is the largest growing, fastest growing demographic of people in our country. With all these things going on, it'd be very easy for several of us to feel like our country is just in decay, to feel like we have reached that place where I, I even heard or saw it in here, but I saw on Facebook some of my Christian friends saying, well, time to move to Mexico or whatever, you know. Many of us might be asking where and how did our country get to this point? Our, our country was built on Christian principles. Our forefathers instilled godly values. And how did we get so far away from that? And many of us could be asking that question. What I would like to suggest today is going to be hard for you to swallow, but listen carefully. Our forefathers, the people that that were in power, our first presidents, uh, the people that wrote our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, they fought for this very thing. Many of the forefathers that we claim had godly values were, in fact, deists. If you look back, and I did this week, I spent about six hours reading through writings of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and such. Many of them, George Washington, John Adams. They were deists, not Christians. And let me explain the difference a little bit because it's important for us to understand how our country got to where it is so that we can think about where it's going to be as we go forward. Okay? Deists are ones who, in short, were men who believed in a deity who created the world and natural processes, but then pretty much left it to its own devices. Okay? So deism is a belief that there is, they wouldn't even call it God. Many of the, many of the deists of the day didn't call it God. They call it a, a deity or a, 
entity, uh, and they, they believed that, they, that a God existed, created everything that is, created a natural order to things, and then has left it to its own devices. And so while deists believed in virtue and morality, they believed that it was the individual responsibility of every individual to learn the natural processes uh, that, that this deity had placed and then to live by a norm or set of morality and virtue as an individual, which sounds awfully familiar to the knowns today, okay? Deism. Let's, let's break it down into two main categories, the critical elements of deism and then constructive elements. Critical elements of deism of the day were a rejection of all religions based on books that claim to contain the revealed word of God, okay? So a deist was one who believed that while God created everything and put in process these natural orders, things like the Bible would be just merely a book. It is not the inspired word of God. God did not involve because that would require him to be involved in the process of what was going on. So it is not inspired word of God. It is not the word of God at all. It is just a book written by men. Okay? Another critical element of deism of the day was the rejection of all religious dogma. And that means all religious school of thought. In other words, they didn't believe in religions or subscribe to a church or a denomination. And they believed the institutionalized school of thought where the individual was, was put aside for the sake of the whole, a community, for example, and, and a school of thought adopted by all, they rejected that notion as deists. Thus, when we talk about our nation and the freedom of religion, many of them came to our nation to institute a freedom, not just of religion, but to institute a freedom for each individual to, to not just believe how they wanted to believe, but that that is what they believed would institute and create a great society. And so that's a far cry different from saying that our forefathers instituted our nation with godly principles as Christians. Because in the Christian faith, we believe not only that God created this world, but that he is highly involved in it in every day living and has a great interest in what's going on here. We believe that not only did he create it, nor, and, and just leave it to his own devices, but that not only God wants to be involved, but that he sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we could be restored into a relationship with him. That is totally different than saying God created it and left it to his own devices. A Christian says God created it, and when humanity rejected relationship with God by choosing sin, God sent his son to die on the cross so that we could be restored back into relationship with God. Third rejection or critical element of deism was the rejection of reports of miracles, prophecies, and religious mysteries. They didn't believe that that existed. In fact, Thomas Jefferson wrote what we call today, many people in layman's terms, call the Jefferson Bible, where he took the four Gospels out of the New Testament. He removed all of the miracles, including the resurrection of Christ, and left the Gospels as he saw them in a deist form, the Jefferson Bible. So Thomas Jefferson removed the essence of Christianity out of the mindset. These are the men that started our colonies into a nation. Somewhere along the way, we bought into the mindset, however, that our nation was founded on godly Christian principles. And we're going to get to that in just a second. 
constructive elements of deism. God exists, created and governs the universe. And God gave humans the ability to reason. Therefore, God doesn't need to be involved. He intends for us to use our ability to reason to live righteously and hopefully please him. Okay? I asked just a second ago where we got the idea that that our nation was built on godly principles. And, and, and the important reason to know all this is because our, our nation was founded on godly principles, but not because of our forefathers, the people who wrote our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution and signed those documents and led our nation as the first presidents of this nation in Congress. It was because at that time, historically, while in Europe, deism was the trend, it was on the upward climb, and that's thus a lot of these leaders came over to our country. Historically, in the United States, why right about the time where we were deciding to declare our independence from England and we would, we would go on to build this into a great nation, we had in the 18th century, 1700s through the 1800s, we had the first and second great awakening as they've been labeled by history. And what that means is, and what that's talking about, is we had revival, unparalleled revival to that date in this nation. There were evangelists like Francis Asbury and George Whitfield, amongst many others, who came over and thanks to the liberties and the freedom that was exercised, that was beginning to be put in place by deists, these men came into this country and serving their God and sharing the gospel, the gospel began to spread an unparalleled, rampant pace. And this nation, these colonies, before they became a nation, suddenly began to be converted to Christianity. And so you have, it's an, it's an incredible thing. If you ever have the time, go look it up. Just Google George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin. Their writings, they developed a great friendship. Benjamin Franklin, while being a deist, could not reject that there was something special about this move that was happening. And you see these writings as he developed a friendship with George Whitfield, one of the great evangelists uh, uh, of all time. George Whitfield, it was recorded as saying that even in those days, in 1700s, when he would preach, he drew crowds up into the 30s, 40s, 1,000 people. And George, uh, Benjamin Franklin, in his journal, you can see writings where he said he could hear George Whitfield preaching for a mile away without sound system. God had anointed that man to preach, and for a mile you could hear his natural voice preaching the gospel. It moved Benjamin Franklin, one who did not believe in Jesus Christ, the teachings of George Whitfield, his anointing was so great that Benjamin Franklin, while being a deist, would go hear George Whitfield preach anytime he was close enough that he could make it. In fact, Benjamin Franklin was always so moved by the anointing on George Whitfield that every time George Whitfield preached, at the end he'd ask for an offering, Benjamin Franklin would give everything he had. And so it's even recorded one time in history in Benjamin Franklin's journals that Benjamin Franklin heard George Whitfield was coming, so he was going to go listen to a preach, so he decided to leave his money purse at home because he knew he would give all his money away. So he left his money purse at home. He goes to hear George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield preached the gospel. And, and the thing you have to understand about Whitfield is he was a charismatic guy. In this time and day in history, the church believed that preaching outside of the church building was a sin. The church also believed that theater was a sin, the theatrical. And so, because at the time, men dressed up and played the roles of women, and the church was like, that's a sin. George Whitfield loved the theater, though. George Whitfield was not given a, a pastorate 
in the church in England, and so he came over to the United States, uh, commissioned by John Wesley to come preach as an evangelist, and he began to preach outside the church buildings. And George Whitfield loved theater, and so it was, it's documented that he was very theatrical in his sermons. In fact, in one sermon, he was preaching about the passage where it says that we are born in the newness of life, and it is said that he acted out the role of a pregnant woman giving birth while preaching. I would have hated to have been in that sermon. But this is the guy that we're talking about. And so Benjamin Franklin left his money purse at home and went to hear George Whitfield preach for the umpteenth time. And it is said and recorded in history that after the sermon, George Whitfield opened up to take an offering. And Benjamin Franklin was so moved that he turned to the man standing next to him, someone he knew, and he took a personal loan from him so that he could give him the offering plate, even though he had left his money back at home. Our nation was founded on godly principles not because of our forefathers. Our nation was founded on godly principles because of the church. Because God was moving in his people. And just like is true of all politicians, the politicians of the day took note of the masses and what was happening around them. And so... While, while they, the politicians, did not believe in Jesus Christ, did not believe in his standard of living, they specifically went against the teachings of the Bible and believing that a book could be inspired by a God. Yet, at the time, tens, uh, hundreds of thousands of people were getting saved, and, and, and not just getting saved, but the Holy Spirit was coming upon them in one of the greatest revivals this nation has ever experienced in the first Great Awakening and then later in the second Great Awakening, and it moved them to such that while even though they would reject the beliefs of Christianity, they acknowledged that these things needed to be a part of our makeup as a nation. Does that make sense? And so li- listen to this, a couple of quotes from Benjamin Franklin in his writings. It was wonderful, this this is Benjamin Franklin talking about uh, after an evangelistic crusade by George Whitfield. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Here's a man that doesn't believe in religion, and he's making a statement like that. That was the impact of the spiritual climate of the day, right? Later on, he would write, in, in, in 1787, he'd write, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Incredible insight. From a man who didn't believe in God, as we do. Yet he acknowledged, and as you read his journals and as you read the letters between him and George Whitfield, he acknowledged that while he didn't believe in miracles, stuff happened when George Whitfield preached. So much so that out of his own income, Benjamin Franklin built an auditorium that seated 30,000 people so that when George Whitfield would come and preach and it was raining, the masses could come and hear him. Later on, that auditorium would be turned into the University of Pennsylvania which was started as a seminary by George Whitfield to train people in the ways of God. In fact, almost every single one of our Ivory League schools today started out as seminaries during the First and Second Great Awakening.
David Plott recently with Francis Chan just, just released a, a new discipleship uh, emphasis. And in talking about it, he tweeted this this week. How to change a nation. Make disciples of Jesus who are making disciples of Jesus. Andy Stanley just released a book called Deep and Wide, and in there he's quoted as, as asking this question of the church. We as the church, are we moving or are we simply meeting? As we talk about the state of our country, let's talk about the state of our church a little bit. Our pastor, lo and behold, is human. And he's needed to get away. And he's needed to deal with some stuff. And I'm happy to say I ate lunch with him this week and he's doing just that. He's dealing with stuff. But the fact of him having to leave to deal with that stuff, maybe it's shaking you a little bit. Financially as a church, we're not meeting up to the projected budget we had set this year. And you've heard all about that. And maybe that's shaking you a little bit. Yet again, we're changing service times. And maybe you're thinking, oh my goodness, going down to one service, that must mean we're shrinking. And maybe that's shaking you because maybe the size of our membership impacts your thinking on the condition and the status of the church. But the reality of it is, people, is that the church is you. You are the church. Let me ask you this question. When you committed to membership here, and we've got that wonderful saying, y'all remember how it goes? You commit to serve this church with your service, your presence, prayers, witness, and gifts, right? After taking those vows in front of everybody, maybe you didn't even think they were vows, it was just just repeat what he says because you're nervous and being in front of that many people, I don't know. But the question is, when you walked in the doors today as a member of First Church, are you one, does your membership to you, does it mean that you attend this building? That you attend worship here? Or does membership mean to you that you are the church? Just as a nation... The climate of this nation will never change by the man we elect into office. The status of our church will not change by the man that stands behind the pulpit. What will change the status of our nation is when the church awakens from its slumber and acknowledges the fact that Membership of Christ's church does not mean I attend worship at a local body. Membership of Christ's church means that I will go about the process going to all nations, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them in the way that they should go. That's what Jesus commanded, not the pastors. He commanded the church. And so, Membership to you, does it mean that you come here as the church? That what makes this building the church is not the sign on the street, it's the church that is within its walls. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with a nation. 
while we can't vote a new president that's going to change the moral climate of our nation, it has to be the church awakening from its slumber saying, we are the church. The kingdom of God will be forcefully advance, not, in, not as we pick it with signs and those kind of things, but as we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I am being discipled, I therefore will go and be discipling at the same time. My membership is not a stagnant thing. My membership is not a known or a deist thing. My membership is not an individual thing. Membership into the church of Jesus Christ is not just about my redemption. We went through a sermon series just a little while ago that talked about the creation, the fall, redemption, and reconciliation with Christ. And many of us believe the creation. We understand the fall. We understand our need of redemption. And many of the church, we talk about how we walk around as the redeemed. And indeed, we are the redeemed. But Christ didn't stop there. Christ died not just to redeem us, but to reconcile us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ didn't die just to redeem us so that one day we could go to heaven. Christ died and rose again so that he could ascend into heaven and send his Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us so that we could live powered by the Holy Spirit and be reconciled into relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this, for I am dead to who I was and now I am born in newness of life thanks to the Holy Spirit and the life I now live I live in Jesus Christ I am in him as he is in me and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father therefore I am in good standing with God and I walk with God and my life is an overflow of what God is doing inside of me and when I walk in these doors I'm not coming as an individual to hear what is given just for me I'm coming in these doors to unite with other people with whom God is working in them and I'm coming together to worship this God Romans 5, and we're not, we don't have time to turn there, but Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, talks about that. It talks about what the law was powerless to do. It talks about how the law was given to make our, our sin increase so that when Christ died, we would understand the depths of his love so that we are not just redeemed, we are reconciled with Christ. Many in the church, though, we walk around like the redeemed. And how that manifests is I walk in the church on Sunday morning and it's all about me. Christ died to save me. I'm an individual. It doesn't matter about my neighbor. It doesn't matter really about the person sitting next to me. What matters to me is if the person preaching preaches something that coincides that, that with my life, that feels good, then I'll receive it. Otherwise, I'll reject it. And even sometimes I'll go and complain about it in my Sunday school class after the sermon. Many times it looks like when I walk in the room, I don't like the decor. I don't like the music the band's playing. I don't like the fact that one week there's a cross and one week there's not. It's all about me and my preference. When we walk into the church as an overflow of what God is doing into us, understanding that I'm not a member of this body, I am the body because Christ is in me and he's in you, then I walk in with a whole different attitude. I walk in saying, I'm here to glorify God. I'm here for the sake of the world. I'm not here for me. Another way to put it is like this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they're persecuting you. That doesn't sound like the American church. When our membership in church is about me, I walk into a building and I want to say, I say, entertain me. Tickle my fancy. If I don't like it, I'm going to hold back my tithe. Make sure the sanctuary looks the way I want it to look. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not blessing. Blessing isn't riches and abundance. Blessing isn't comfort. Blessing is discomfort. Blessing is persecution for my name. Jesus is saying, listen, the church is about us being God to the world. It's about us being Christ in a dying world. Like we sang earlier, for the sake of the world, light a fire in me. You see, our country was founded on Christian principles, not because of the leadership. It was founded on Christian principles because there were people who were living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was contagious. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. If we're living like the church, our neighbors want to know the reason for the hope we have. Our colleagues at work want to know the reason for the hope we have because we're walking in abundant joy. We're rejoicing even in our persecution. Even when, we, when, when the world around us is falling apart, even when we're poor in spirit, meek, even when we are being persecuted, we rejoice because God's purposes are higher than ours. I've been reconciled to God. God created us to do what? What did he tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Go, look it up later, Genesis 1 and 2. Go and rule over the earth. Another way he says in some versions is go subdue the earth. Christ redeemed us so that we could be reconciled to who we were supposed to be. We are supposed to be a vessel through which Jesus Christ, via his Holy Spirit, subdues the world around us. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians in this country today, if you look at Facebook, if you look at their responses to the elections, they're letting society subdue them. When our church meetings are more about what will the lost people want to hear to come in our doors rather than saying, what can we do to take Christ outside our doors, then we've lost perspective. He goes on, 5.13, Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Wow. If the moral condition of our country 
if our belief system as Christians is being trampled by our society, maybe it's because we've lost our saltiness. Maybe it's because our perspective on what our role as the church is is grossly skewed. 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Oh, that's good. I have a a friend. He was born in a Muslim country, raised Muslim, and, uh, and... now he attends university. Actually, he's graduated from university, but I met him several years ago speaking at a college retreat, and he had gotten saved, and his salvation story is just incredible. Um, Jesus met him in a dream and basically just led him to the Lord. It was a phenomenal story. Uh, but he, he posted on Facebook the other day in, in, in view, not, not just of the elections, but uh, the response of Christians in the elections, and I want to read it to you this morning. He says this, as a non-American now Christian, looking at the church in the United States. His, his perspective is real interesting. I think we approach church as we do voting, a, a voting ballot. We cast our support and hope in a professional who best illustrates our convictions and can communicate those to others. We pridefully wear a sticker or a denomination, then we sit back, watch, and criticize. If you are passionate about issues like representing the Bible then engage rather than just being enraged. Be the difference. Our professional minister's job is to equip his, God's people for works of service. Change isn't limited to just government, and love shouldn't be expected from institutions, but rather collectively through sacrificing individuals, the church, a movement, and the real hope of the world. We need to get back to that mindset as American Christians. Listen, the future of this church is simple. It's not contingent on who's in the pulpit. It's contingent on who we, the body of Christ, are. Our invitation today is is simply this. Some of us in the room need to repent. Just say, God, my Christianity has been all about me. My relationship and my membership here, I've let it be about me. And I need to recognize it's about you, like we sang earlier, for the sake of the world, for your glory to be made known. Some of us have issues with brothers and sisters in the room. And rather than like Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew, talking to each other and working them out, we've gone and talked to other people about them behind their back. And we need to come together and we need to come to the altar and we need to work that out. Some of us need to get on our knees and just simply pray for our nation and for our church. Listen, I'm fully convinced that when we start acting and living like the church was intended to, God will open up the floodgates of heaven. He doesn't need my tithe or yours. He dictates his blessings. I'm fully convinced that when we get on our knees and praise, as 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, we get on our knees and humble ourselves 
and turn from our wicked ways and put our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and repent and ask him to come intervene. Like it says, he will hear us from heaven and he will come and he will heal our land. And that's more than just this country, that's this church. It's your home, it's your workplace, it's your neighborhood, it's your extended family. Whatever, wherever you place your feet and walk represents your land. So let's come and let's kneel together and let's say, God, make my priorities straight. Lord, forgive me because I, I've been so self-seeking in my relationship with you. And Lord, make it about you again and, 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 and come and turn my heart towards you and take my eyes off of the stuff of this world the stuff that I want and put my eyes firmly fixed on you so that I might live a life for the sake of the world and and so that you would hear from heaven and you would come and send your Holy Spirit and work inside me and change who I am so that you could use me to heal my land, my workplace, Lord. Change it. My school students, change it, God. Nine, nine kids have committed suicide or, or, or died in the past couple months. So maybe you need to hit your knees and say, God, change me so that you can heal my land. You know, maybe you're, you're, you've got family members that are right. Maybe, maybe you've got issues at home, abroad. Maybe you, you've got issues with a significant other that once was. I don't know what it is. As a church, we've got issues. But what we need to do, rather than criticize, rather than complain, rather than back off, is we need to engage more people. We are, we are primed for revival. These things that plague us as a church and a nation, they don't draw us away from God. They don't cause us to question where is God and how is he in control of this. What it does is it helps us understand that God is bringing us back to a place of Matthew chapter 5 where we will be poor in spirit, where we will recognize that ours is not to live comfortably as Christians. Ours is to be persecuted for the sake of Christ so that we can represent Christ to this dying world. When we do that, God will manifest in power. This church will explode with revival. And everywhere we go, we'll have spiritual awakening as a result. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come now. I pray as we sing that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict. But more importantly, Lord, that you'd send your Holy Spirit to reconcile us to who you created us to be. Lord, for the sake of the world, burn a fire in me that that I might be all you intended for me to be so that your Holy Spirit can live through me and change this church, change this land. Lord, we are a desperate people who are desperate for more of you. So meet us here. Open up your floodgates and pour out your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.